Well, as Andy mentioned, it is our final Sunday evening worship for the year. And, um, you know, so I've been thinking uh, through uh, this evening and thinking through our study and really in many ways wrestling with uh, where we are in the book of Acts. We uh, have uh, arrived in the book of Acts to the life of Stephen, which uh, not only involves one of the longest and greatest sermons that you'll find in Scripture in Acts chapter 7, but really a transitional passage in Acts 6 uh, describing his life. Uh, I have wrestled with how to bridge those two things across the many months that will separate them between tonight and uh, next year. So, uh, out of uh, much anguish, I decided, you know, we need to wait. We need to wait and make sure that we deal with all that together. Uh, Stephen's life along with Stephen's sermon as they complement one another in Scripture. With all that said, I uh, started to think about then what we could spend maybe a few minutes tonight thinking through as a church and just pondering the conversations particularly that I've had in recent weeks with a number of people in the church regarding decisions uh, that they are trying to make, sometimes decisions with houses, sometimes decisions with jobs, decisions with moving decisions with uh, schooling um, and other uh, issues in between. And so I thought it would be helpful for us to maybe kind of retrace some basic ground when it comes to decision making, to guidance from Scripture. There are, of course, different ways that people make decisions uh, in what they would think of as spiritual terms. There are some who sort of have a priestly view, and that is to essentially say they look for guidance by asking those people who they see as over them, uh, sort of in authority over them. This would certainly be within the Roman Catholic Church, that idea that uh, somehow your priest has some direct connection or better connection to God, and so you go and you seek uh, kind of counsel from him. But uh, in a broader sense, there has, uh, from time to time, popped up what's sometimes known as the shepherding movement in the United States, uh, where all of the important decisions in life are essentially dictated or approved by one's elder or one's pastor. This was particularly prominent in a number of churches in Florida, the shepherding movement, where people just sort of uh, went into a default uh, uh, submission view and all of the things that they really had to deal with in life were made in almost a sort of parent-child relationship, except the parents were their elders and their church leaders. This shepherding movement um, was strong for some period of time until, not surprisingly, uh, some of their key leaders fell into immorality. Uh, what is the old saying? Um, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. So the Bible certainly calls for submission to your elders, but not that kind of, of abdication of your personal responsibility in the daily decisions of your life. So there's not the priestly view, certainly, that's going to work uh, for us. Some people take the charismatic view, finding guidance from direct communication from God. They seek out a vision, a dream, an audible voice, 
Sometimes even a spokesperson, an apostle, or a prophet, or someone with a word of knowledge, or some other supernatural gift. Again, there's nothing there any more than the the priestly view or the shepherding view. Nothing there that would prevent any more uh, or defend you any more, safeguard you any more against common human error. Because no man is infallible as God is. And when he speaks, no matter what title he gives to himself, he speaks fallibly. He speaks from... His finite position. Those who claim a vision, those who claim a word of knowledge or whatever it might be, don't have the capacity and don't demonstrate the capacity that you find in the New Testament when someone spoke prophetically. They are fallible and it's been proven time and time again. See, people have muted that down uh, from the charismatic position to maybe a third position that makes them still feel spiritual without necessarily sounding as as uh, flaky as some of their charismatic friends. And so we might call that third position the personal peace view. That is the idea that you will know God's will by looking carefully into a combination of circumstances, impressions in your heart, inner voices, and ultimately personal peace in your mind. This is how you know the will of God. Most people admit that you you cannot directly violate Scripture. The Christian can't be led by God into sin. But there are areas in life that are never clearly defined as sin and And so people are sort of left in those gray areas piecing together a series of inner feelings and outer circumstances trying to navigate their way through life. This view generally emphasizes that God has a single plan for each person, but you can tragically miss that plan if you do not remain carefully sensitive to these inner promptings. One of the problems, of course, with this view is once someone becomes convinced that they've made a wrong choice, derailed from the plan, they have, they have sabotaged in so many ways their hope of ever having inner peace. They're constantly torn up inside with doubts and questions and wonderings and ponderings whether or not they missed God's perfect will at this point or that point or or just simply with the uh, anguish of trials and temptations in life they are left tossed here and there by doubt and by frustration over not knowing what God's will is at each and every turn well against all of those we might place on the table a fourth view which we'll just simply call the biblical wisdom view. The biblical wisdom view. And it's outlined throughout Scripture. It's outlined a number of different places. But particularly tonight, I want to draw your attention to a passage that will frame our, our uh, time together briefly tonight in Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. 
which calls for, and you'll see this emphasized at, in verse 17 of that chapter, calls for us not to be foolish, but to understand what the will of the Lord is. Do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. This is a section, a passage, about the will of God and knowing the will of God. It by no means is the comprehensive passage, as we said, that really all of Scripture lays out so much wisdom in this, but it encapsulates many of the important lessons that we need to keep in mind as we're trying to make decisions and understand what God would have us to do. Really, you can back up to verse 15 when Paul says, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And he says in verse 18, do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Just a few brief lessons here that we can discern when it comes to understanding the will of God. They're not terribly profound or, as I said, not completely comprehensive, but helpful for us as we think through these issues. Number one really comes to us in verse 15, and that is to determine carefully, determine carefully what God demands. That is simply to say Paul calls us here in verse 15 to look carefully at how we walk. And you'll notice that there's even a... uh, A sort of coordinating uh, adjective here when he says, look carefully then how you walk. He's referring back to, in light of something he's just said, really all of verses 3 through 14, when Paul has dealt with a number of issues that apparently the Ephesian church was struggling with, things such as verse 3, Sexual immorality and impurity and covetousness, which Paul says is not even to be named among you. But Paul says even beyond that, verse 4, filthy talk and crude joking. Things that are not necessarily befitting of thanksgiving. He's talking in verse 5 about putting these kind of people uh, that uh, the, the person who's sexually impure or immoral whose covetous has no inheritance in the kingdom of God and of Christ. And so let no one deceive you with empty words. Because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Paul says in those verses, simply understand this. That when you're trying to discern the will of God, recognize that there are simply some areas that are not going to bring blessing into your life that are going to bring struggle, they're going to bring trial, they're going to bring wrath, or we would say they would bring chastening. There are some areas of your life that are clearly defined in Scripture, not only here, but in other places. Paul says, for example, in 1 Thessalonians 4, this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you know how to possess your body in purity and abstaining from sexual immorality. And so as you are discerning the will of God, one of the first things you need to do is look at the obvious commands. Look at the obvious calls to purity, to contentment, 
away from sexual immorality, away from covetousness, away from all those things that incur the wrath of God and stir His disciplining hand, that afflict your conscience and send you into emotional and spiritual turmoil. Pay careful attention, in other words, to every area of your life. Weigh them, be careful with them, take heed to them, consider them. Give your undivided attention to understanding God's will in every area. This has been translated a number of ways. Be watchful, be mindful that your walk and that your life are governed and dominated in every way by godly wisdom. There are so many areas that we don't know that exactly what God's will is. God doesn't have a verse that tells you which house to buy, which house not how, which house not to buy. But there are many, many verses that tell you exactly what you need to be doing. And Paul's call here is that we give attention most particularly to those. It's unfortunate that it's not the way that many, many people around you govern their lives. They don't govern their lives by careful and considerate reflection on godliness in every area. They are governed by impulse, governed by reaction, governed by desire, governed by impatience, governed by so many other things. Proverbs fourteen sixteen says, the one who's wise is cautious turns away from evil, but a fool is reckless and careless. So there's your contrast that Paul's making here. A cautious person versus someone who's reckless, who doesn't pay attention to all the small things in their life. They're careless with the details of their spiritual walk. They're not thoughtful. They're not considerate. And really everything Paul's saying here in verse 15, harkens back to everything he said in those verses prior to. We read through verse 6. I want you to look in verse 10 when Paul says, Try then to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. The whole of your life is to be a continual investigation into what pleases God, not so much what pleases yourself. Continually testing, continually examining Continually growing in your discernment of the Lord's will. The word there in verse 10, dakimazo, carries with it the idea of testing for the purpose of proving. That is, we, we see this call over and over and over again in Scripture for us to constantly be putting things to the test. When, we, when we're encountered with new relationships, encountered with new situations, involving ourselves in new uh, habits, uh, new environments, uh, all that stuff. We need to constantly be putting that stuff through the grid to know what God's will is. We're always in a process of learning. I know I am. I'm always trying to discern how I need to navigate the situations that I'm in with what would honor the Lord. Because things are constantly thrown at you. New situations are constantly coming. All this is set against the backdrop of what Paul is telling them in verse 8, to walk as children of light and to put away the fruits of darkness. 
He says the fruit of the light in verse 9 is found in all that is good and right and pure. You're pursuing that. Every area of your life. A lifelong pursuit to know more and more and better and better what the Lord's will is in each of your life. What is pleasing to the Lord in how you would spend your time, in how you would use your money, in how you would use your tongue, in the way that you govern your thoughts, in the way that you that you uh, even follow with your actions, the way you prepare your day, the way you end your day. A constant pursuit and testing and effort to discern, to grow. I mean, we all wish that we sort of had a divine helpline. Every time these little things came up, we just dial up to God and ask Him whatever we want about what we're facing at this particular time in life. But the reality is, that kind of wisdom to make those kinds of decisions doesn't come in a snap. It is the cumulative impact of someone dedicating their life to knowing the Lord's will in all the small things. Someone who has, who has disciplined their mind over to the will of the Lord in all the little things. Paul says we need to be this kinds of people. Carefully, carefully examining how we walk so as not to be unwise, but to be wise. Secondly, verse 16, develop then biblical priorities. Develop biblical priorities. This is Paul's explanation in verse 16 of what it means to walk in wisdom when he says to make the best use of the time because the days are evil. Make the best use of the time. As to say, in the grand scheme, not only are you, are, are you searching out everything that you can know about God's will from His Word and you're applying it into every little area of your life, but then beyond those very direct commands that you have in speech and in stewardship and in action and all that, beyond those very direct commands, there's the overarching principle of priorities and how you're going to, how you're going to value different things. And Paul uses a term here for buying or redeeming something, redeeming particularly a slave, but he uses it here in terms of time and he's telling us to buy back the time, just like you would buy back a slave, redeem them back out of their slavery. It's the, the notion of the word. People would sometimes have the opportunity to buy their freedom. And so he's talking about buying someone back out of slavery. And what Paul is painting here is a picture of someone taking and enslaving your days. And it's your job to continually buy them back by employing them in godly purposes. He says you have to do this because the days are evil. It's a reference to Satan's influence over society. You remember 
if you've studied the book of Ephesians with us, you remember the book is really dominated by this, by this sort of theology of Satan, this theology of, of the prince of the power of the air, as he's called back in Ephesians 2.2, 2, who is over the course of this world. And that word uh, course is the word cosmos. It's talking about the, the ordering. We use it, obviously, of, of space and the orbits of all the planets and all that. But it's really a basic word that talks about ordering things. And so it has the idea that Satan is the one who is over the order or the structure or the, the governance of this world system. Its values and its ways of running are, are influenced and overseen, I should say, by him. In fact, the, world, the word world, aeon, it isn't actually a word for a material world. It's more a word for an age a time period. And so Paul's talking about the patterns, the systems that govern our times. We might call it the spirit of the times. This is what influences unbelievers, we're told in Ephesians chapter 2. They are completely spiritually dead, and so therefore they are somewhat uh, puppets of the system, they just sort of play to the tune that's played to them or they dance to the tune that's played to them. They don't have the capacity really to, to go against it. They are just following in the course of the world. The unbeliever is responsive to all of these patterns that shape the world around them and the times that they live in, but we're called to be different. This is why Paul says back here in Ephesians 2 that Satan is controlling the course of the world and we all used to walk in it when we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were controlled by the values. We pursued what the world pursues. We invested our time, our emotions, our beliefs, our fears or whatever it might be in the same things in which they invested their time, their emotions, their fears, their, their whatever. Even over in chapter 6, Paul tells us that Satan force, Satan's forces in verse 10, which are presented as cosmic powers over this present darkness, spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Passage that we're very familiar with because of how it speaks of spiritual warfare. Paul will tell us we're at war with cosmic forces who are employing not physical weapons, but weapons against the truth and against theological positions. Their lies, their deceptions, their things that attack God's truth. Even back in chapter 4, verse 22, he talked about being buffeted by deceitful desires. In the beginning sections of chapter 5, there are a number of places that talk about being deceived, about walking in darkness. Satan is in the business, in other words, of deceiving, of fooling, of controlling, of enslaving as many people as he can in the way they think. Leading them simply in the course of the world. 
And so Ephesians 5.16, Paul's telling us, buy back the time. All of this stuff that Satan wants to enslave you in, that he wants to captivate you in, that he wants you to throw away in wasteful effort, wasteful time, enslaved by pursuing false ideas, by, by being filled with false values, by entertaining false hopes, and by being driven in false fears. These are the things the world is consumed with. And Satan is enslaving them. He's enslaving their desires. He's enslaving them by dreams. He's enslaving them by plans. Even plans and hopes and dreams that are consumed simply with the here and now. They may not necessarily be false. They may simply be frivolous. And people base their whole lives. They center their whole days. They take up all their thought life and all their time and all of their energy and all of their emotion with this stuff. And being so captivated. What Paul's saying is they miss enormous opportunities. Opportunities to invest in your children. Opportunities to invest in other people who are hurting. Opportunities to minister the gospel to the lost. Opportunities to proclaim Christ once again. Opportunities to pray. Opportunities to serve. Opportunities to to use the time for redemptive purposes. So many opportunities to glorify God that are just simply enslaved to Satan. If you're going to be someone who is finding the will of God, you have to realize that one of the places to begin is by prioritizing, prioritizing spiritual things. Otherwise, you're just going to, they're just going to pass you by. They're just going to completely pass you by. And you'll be robbed of so many of the Lord's will, so many things of the Lord's will, because you just simply weren't looking for them. Listen, if you're going to know the Lord's will, you've got to learn to be cautious and careful and determine uh, what the Lord's will, determine to discern it. You've got to be constantly prioritizing the right things. Thirdly, you need to distinguish human opinion from God's wisdom. You need to distinguish human opinion from God's wisdom. This is what Paul's Admonition is in verse 17, therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Something of a restatement of the same principle, but it highlights for us as we really are on sort of uh, the edge of verse 18. Paul is setting up a contrast. 
And the Bible speaks in terms of contrast. People don't like it. But the Bible sets the world in contrast. A contrast between God's way and the way of the evil one. I mean, even back in the garden, it was two trees, one allowed, one forbidden. There is eternal destiny, either heaven or hell. There are two pathways, one narrow and one wide. There are two kinds of fruit, one that is of the flesh and one that's of the spirit. And all of this, we don't have time to trace it all the way through, but all of this is simply antithetical thinking. There are two distinct, separate ways. And you'll find it all the way through Scripture. One commentator says people who study the Bible in depth develop antithetical mindsets. They think in terms of opposites or contrasts. And the reason is that, for that is because God's Word is designed to get you to think that way. And in the midst of a relativistic culture that recoils at such an idea as antithetical truth, it recoils at the idea of such black and white categories, Paul is telling us here that we need to not be foolish on one hand, But on the other hand, understand what the will of the Lord is. This is decisive language. It calls for absolute conviction. Demands a definitive choice. Over and over and over again, you hear this in Scripture. How long will you hesitate between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow Him. If Baal is God, follow Him. Definitive. Antithetical. Choose this day whom you will serve. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. How blessed is the man who meditates on the law of God, but the wicked are not so, Psalm 1 says. God's ways are not our ways, and His thoughts are not our thoughts, Isaiah 55. He tells us to reject the broad way and to follow the narrow way that leads to life. He reminds us to submit to God and to resist the devil and he will flee. Peter commands us to turn away from evil and do good. Abstain from everything. Hold fast to what is good, Thessalonians 5. Friendship with the world is enmity with God. If you read the Bible, you study it, you just begin to think in these antithetical terms. That there is a truth and there is an error. There is a right and there is a wrong. And that we need to seek out the right and abstain from the wrong. Scripture is constantly calling us to this hard line. Demanding that we be against certain things and for certain things. This is the antithetical mindset. It's the mindset that defines discernment. And this is what's behind Paul's statement here. Therefore, do not be foolish. Don't be drawn into the judgment and the foolishness of the world. We don't have time to trace out a theology of the fool, but the long and short of it is that the fool is someone who in the Scripture, first of all, denies God's existence. He says there is no God. And secondly, he's defined again and again in the Proverbs as someone who trusts in his own mind. He loves to express his own thoughts. 
He always, always is seeking to share his own thoughts, but not to learn. This is the fool. And he's governed by a essentially secular outlook. If the way of the world and the mind of the unbeliever is consistently described in Scripture, it's described as foolish. That's probably the most dominant description. Followed closely maybe by darkness. And so Paul's telling us to make a choice here. To turn away from the foolish. And to give our hearts over to wisdom. Steadfastly on guard, presenting ourselves continually to God. It's the contrast that Paul makes over and over again. 1 Corinthians 1 In the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, so it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. See, there's a certain wisdom that claims to be wisdom in the world that isn't a wisdom because it doesn't draw you any closer to God. It will tell you that it'll get you to heaven, but it doesn't. It'll tell you that it pleases God, but it doesn't. It'll tell you... That it will make you wiser, but it doesn't. Paul says that the world through that kind of wisdom doesn't come to know God because that is wisdom in name only. That wisdom presents itself often in religious garb, philosophical garb, even historical garb. But underneath it is simply another lie of Satan. But in chapters 2 of 1 Corinthians, Paul contrasts all of that wisdom with the wisdom that he speaks, which he says comes from what is revealed in the Word of God. The explanation of his commitment, he says, I came to you not with eloquent words of wisdom, decided to leave behind all the wisdom of the world, And decided to know nothing among you except Christ and Him crucified. Decided to know nothing among you except the wisdom that was revealed to us. Decided to know nothing among you except what was given to us by divine revelation. It's pretty narrow-minded. It's a pretty narrow-minded perspective. I am going to commit my mind to knowing nothing except what I find in the Bible. That's a narrow-minded man. And he's a man of wisdom and discernment. This is no halfway commitment. This isn't someone who dabbled with Bible trivia. This was a man who steadfastly turned away from the wisdom of the world and steadfastly sought after the wisdom of God. And he developed this antithetical mindset. The wisdom of God set over against the wisdom of the world. There are all kinds of people who are going to present themselves as experts in life to you. On all kinds of things. Marriage and parenting and business and finances and how to succeed and all of that. And when you hear all that stuff. You just need to make a beeline to the Word of God and find the foundation principles there for all of those things. 
and find out what is built on that. This is the the call to wisdom with one final principle then that Paul gives us, one final step in this walk of wisdom that really unfolds for us in verse 18. We'll just briefly comment on it. Paul says then, having established all these things, having been determined to have God's wisdom in every area of your life, you're careful, in other words, having not just the determination there, but also the priorities in verse 16, having the discernment between what is human wisdom and what is God's wisdom, Paul says finally in verse 18, be filled with the Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit. Don't get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Just to sort of summarize what he has to say here, when Paul speaks about being filled, he's talking about control. Let the Spirit control you. Let the Spirit control you. Don't let drunkenness control you. And you could stick on any uh, number of other influences there. Don't let greed control you. Don't let anger control you. Don't let lust control you. Don't be filled with any of those things. People are filled with anger. We know. We know that they're filled with greed. Those are both biblical terms. The Bible speaks about being filled with anger, being filled with greed. But here it talks about being filled with the Spirit. And when it says all of this... It's not necessarily talking about some uh, emotional experience that comes over you. Certainly not some event where you are experiencing a charismatic expression and speaking in tongues. What it's talking about is plain and simple giving control of your life over to the Spirit. So that you walk step by step in the Spirit. Paul says this will result in a number of fruits... You'll be addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. You'll be singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. You'll be giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you'll be submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Four results that come from this filling with the Spirit. Incidentally, it's the same four results you see in Colossians chapter 3. When Paul tells us not to be filled with the Spirit, but to let the Word of Christ richly dwell within us. You let the Word of Christ fill you, and you have the exact same response. You're addressing one another in Psalms and spiritual songs. You're singing in your heart to the Lord. Thirdly, you're giving thanks. Fourthly, you're submitting. Colossians three sixteen through 18. So we just assume that if it's the exact same response, if it's the exact same fruit, if it's the exact same product, then they must be synonymous uh, terms. They must be synonymous concepts. Being filled with the Spirit then is filling your mind with the Word of God. You fill your mind with the Word of God, you give Him the tools to then be able to control you. You can't be filled with the Spirit, in other words, if you're not filled with the Word. You can't be filled with the Word if you're not reading the Word. You can't be controlled by the Spirit if you don't give Him the tool that He uses to control, which is the Word of God. 
This doesn't answer every single decision in life with some black and white uh, directive from God. What it does is it builds up your overall discernment. It builds up your overall discernment. As you go through life and apply God's word in all of these areas, you begin to see things that you didn't see. You begin to think of consequences of actions beyond the scope of what you thought in the past. You begin to think down the road of consequences of what may happen in the future. You begin to think about no longer just the implications on yourself, but the implications now on others because the word of God has taught you to esteem the interest of others above your own. You begin to think about the glory of God rather than your own comfort. You begin to think about stewardship rather than your own personal finances. You begin to think about all these things because you begin to fill your mind with God's word. And those are the values now that are beginning to dominate your thinking. Give the Spirit all those tools. The Bible says He begins to direct your steps. So it has to have this level of commitment, determination, that you don't want to know the will of the Lord just in the big things. You want to know it in everything. You want to be careful. It has to have this commitment to the right priorities. You want to, you want to um, as Paul says, Here in verse 16, you want to make the most of your time. You want to redeem it all. You have to have this determination of what is human foolish wisdom and eschew it. This antithetical thinking where you are not entertaining those things. You're determining, as Paul says, not to know any of it. And then finally, you have to have a steady diet. Of God's word. A diet of God's word. Where your intake is giving the spirit the tools. To be able to steer your life. Your thinking. Your desires. And all of that. In ways that please the Lord. I wish I could just open up. A book. With every question. And every decision. That you'll ever make. And tell you well this is exactly who God wants you to marry. This is the kind of scarf you should wear this morning. All of these things. But believe it or not, God cares about everyone. And there is a path of wisdom that can help you think through every decision of life if you simply apply these principles. Well, let's stand together. We'll be dismissed with a word of prayer. Father, we're grateful for this reminder tonight, thankful that you give to us all sufficiency in all things so that our life can be pleasing to you. We understand that we have been given all things for life and godliness, and we want to live in godliness. So help us to be careful. Help us to be discerning. Help us to prioritize. Help us, Lord, to turn away from the foolishness of the world. To buy back every moment for your use. And help us, Lord, to fill our hearts and minds with as much of your word as we can. So that you can fill us with your spirit. 
and direct our steps. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.